Good morning and welcome to our service today. I'm glad to be leading you in the word and, and uh, you've probably heard me mentioned by two different names. Um, Elizabeth is my real name, Lisa is a nickname, both are fine. So I like to just keep people on their toes. Um, so have you been watching the playoffs, the NHL playoffs? My team, Edmonton, is out. The Leafs are still in. So what's an Edmonton transplant to do? I guess I have to cheer for the Leafs now, I guess. So what drives your decision about who to cheer for in a sports game? Who have you been cheering for in these playoffs? For my reading break in my last year of university, I visited my sister in Vancouver and we went to a hockey game. The Vancouver Canucks were hosting the Edmonton Oilers. Having grown up in Edmonton, we, of course, cheered for the Oilers. Sitting behind us in the stands were four Australians who were looking for a truly Canadian experience. So they went to a hockey game. But they didn't want to just watch the game. They wanted to experience it. So they decided they'd have to become fans of one of the teams. They didn't know much about hockey, and they had no particular reason to like one over the other. So they decided to choose a side based on which jersey they liked better. They thought the Euler jersey was better, so they joined us in cheering for the visiting team in an arena that was filled with thousands of Vancouver fans. We had a really good time, especially because the Oilers won. But it always struck me as a strange and funny way to decide what side you are on. Choosing a faith community or making decisions about theology and living life within that community are hopefully based on much more than just appearances. And figuring out how to live as Christians in the world we live in is a bit more significant than choosing who to cheer for in a hockey game. At times, the right way to live seems obvious. And then we encounter someone who also follows Jesus, who has come to a completely different conclusion. And we're left wondering how someone who claims to know Jesus could have strayed so far. Why has the Holy Spirit not let them know what the Holy Spirit has let us know? This question has been on my heart for many years. And I first really encountered it when I was working for a group of Christian Reformed churches in the Toronto area. I was putting together a team to work together on church safety. And after a meeting one evening, I received an email from one of the participants saying that he was withdrawing from the committee because he could not work with people who believed it was okay for a woman to preach. I was insulted, I was hurt, and left wondering, what do I do with this? I knew he followed God. I knew he was a Christian. One option would be to try and convince him that he was wrong, to send him all sorts of emails and all sorts of articles about why women should be allowed in church leadership. Another option would be to dismiss him, to be glad that he was quitting so that I would not need to deal with someone who thought differently than me probably the two most common responses 
when it comes to conflict, the fight or the flight. And Christians have been using these two methods for centuries. History is full of stories of religious wars and splits in the church. I hear these stories too when they're told to me by residents in the nursing homes who tell me how they were raised to despise Catholics or despise Protestants because they were the wrong sort of Christians. But now they sit together in the dining room and they worship together in our Bible studies and our church services. They talk and they laugh and they realize they're not much different than the other groups. We often want to put people into groups, the wrong type of Christians and the right type of Christians. And we take passages like Philippians 2 verse 2 that says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. And we argue that if others do not, are not like us or come to the same conclusions, then they're not listening to the Holy Spirit. They must be the wrong kinds of Christians. And if they can't be convinced that they are wrong and repent of their ways, then we dismiss them or the church splits again. When Pastor Nicole asked me to preach today and told me we were in the midst of a series about the work of the Holy Spirit, I was reminded of these questions. Where is the Holy Spirit? And what is the Holy Spirit doing when believing Christians who are earnestly seeking out what God wants for them and the church, and yet they all believe that they are being, and they all believe they're being led by the Holy Spirit, and yet they come to completely different conclusions? It's just a little question to guide our time together. And a little spoiler alert, I don't come to a whole complete answer at the end of this sermon. But what I do hope to do with our time together is explore a passage that gives us insight and guidance about how to navigate this quandary. To do this, we'll be reading from Matthew 17, verses 22 to 18, verse 35, especially keeping in mind verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. It's an incredibly beautiful and powerful verse just on its own. But it becomes even more powerful and instructive as we understand it in the context of the verses surrounding it. This passage takes place before Jesus died, rose, and sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke these words of this passage while he was still on earth. And the Holy Spirit continues to instruct us and help us to live these words out in our lives now that Jesus is no longer with us in person. Angela is going to read the passage and stop every few verses, and then I'll spend some time unpacking those verses and talk how they fit into the larger context of the passage. Each of these parts could really use a sermon on its own, but it's important, too, to get a sense of the overall structure. And since I'm sure you don't want to be here all week, um, we'll just summarize things as much as possible. 
So for a lot of the interpretation of these verses, I lean heavily on Frederick Dale Bruner's commentary on Matthew 13 to 28 called The Church Book. And the section that we'll be reading today is also part of a larger teaching that Jesus gives on the elements that make church community. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open to Matthew 17, um, and we'll start at verse 22. And with God's word open before us, let's take a moment to pause and ask God to open our hearts to receive God's word. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom through Christ our Lord. Amen. So starting at Matthew 17, 22. When they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. In the book of Matthew, this is the second time out of three that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. It may seem to be a strange way of starting a teaching about community, but it's essential that we don't overlook it because all the instructions and stories that follow are in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Community life happens under the sign of the cross. And this highlights two things. First, that community cannot happen without the gift of grace, love, and forgiveness that God gives. And second, that being part of a community can be painful. We may be asked to do things that we do not want to do. But before we're asked to do these things, Jesus does them first. In order to live in community well, we need to accept Jesus' sacrifice and orientate ourselves towards Christ. And everything else is possible because of Jesus. Verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Well, from others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But, so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. Open its mouth and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is the first of three vignettes that teach us about how the members of a community are to act when it comes to their own behavior. Through this story of Jesus paying the temple tax, we learn that although those who follow Jesus are actually free from the legalism that invades our lives, we sometimes still need to respect it 
In the temple of the time of Jesus, they had all kinds of rules and demands that if they were not followed, could get you expelled from the community. But Jesus came to free us from those types of rules and regulations that keep people from experiencing abundant life. And yet followers of Jesus are willing to limit freedoms in order to serve the larger purpose. In this case, it was not to cause offense to the temple leaders and so to prevent them from coming to faith in Jesus. And as Christ followers today, we always need to balance our freedom in Christ with what is helpful for the larger purpose of showing God's love and sharing the gospel message to the wider community. The Apostle Paul expands on this as well in his letters to the churches of his time. We may be free, but we must not let our freedom cause others to stumble. We find ourselves today facing this kind of issue around the rules and regulations that our government has put into place because of the pandemic. There are some churches that have stressed their freedom in Christ and the importance of corporate worship and so have deliberately disobeyed the rules of limiting gatherings and wearing masks. There are some Christians who believe that it's not about freedom in Christ at all, but about listening to those who have been set over us by God for infection control to limit the spread of the disease and protect others. And yet others have been willing to limit their freedom in order that they don't become a barrier to people coming to faith in Jesus. I know that I'm wandering into a lot of controversy here, and my goal is not to offend, but to draw our attention to how Jesus lived. In other stories, Jesus did not worry about offending people. He cleared the temple and defied the rules. And yet in this case, he was willing to limit his freedom for the sake of others. Let's read on. Chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. One of the greatest enemies of the Christian community is the desire to be the greatest. Or maybe we might say to be the most spiritual or to be the closest to Jesus. After all, isn't this what life is about? Jesus takes the opposite view and lowers our sights to focus on those who are the least in society. This doesn't mean specifically children. It may include children, but it also includes all those who are little, people of society. The least, the unimportant, the marginalized, the ones who are most often looked past. Perhaps today, if Jesus was giving the same message, he would have called to him a homeless person, or a drug addict, or a senior living in a nursing home, 
or someone who identifies with the LGBTQ community. We are so often sure that we are right in our views and, and how we live. We want to be right. But here, Jesus asks us that we not be worried about our greatness, but that we welcome the lowly of society, that we show humility even when we are absolutely sure we are right. What would it mean to approach others with the attitude, I may be wrong, and actually mean it? We are Jesus' followers. We are not Jesus. Matthew 18, 6-9. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Ouch. <laughs> These are really harsh words. And they can sometimes challenge our idea of a loving and compassionate God. In this teaching, Jesus focuses on the little ones on the least and the lowly of the previous lesson. Jesus' love and compassion is focused on them. And we are all challenged to be sensitive to the other person, to do the other person no harm, essentially to the community, essential to the community of faith is sensitivity and discipline. We are challenged to examine our lives and deal with what is hurting others. It's most likely hurting us as well, even if we don't see it. If you find these types of sins, these things in your own life, don't go maiming yourself. This passage uses exaggeration in order to make sure that we realize how serious this is. Jesus is serious about protecting the marginalized in our communities. We need to hold those to account who hurt others. This is really heavy stuff, and it can be overwhelming, because the thing is, we will all fail. We will hurt others. We'll even hurt the marginalized and the lowly. And when we realize how serious Jesus really is about protecting the little people in our communities, it can sometimes even become paralyzing. But remember the introduction to this whole section. As a Christian community, we are under the cross. Jesus' love and forgiveness covers us. That doesn't give us the right to deliberately hurt others. But we can be assured what the enemy means for evil, God 
can work it for good. I was trying to find a funny story, a, a story to lighten things, because this is really, really heavy. A preacher is always looking for good illustrations. But the only thing that kept coming to mind was this silly little saying that my husband and his, David, and his friend of his, James, often say. I'll give you a little bit of background. You know those days, we are trying to come up with something for dinner, and you know that there's a leftover casserole in the fridge, and the thought of eating that again, well, it just doesn't sit well. But you don't want to waste food, so you get it out, and you look at it, and you try and think of something that will revive it. The answer is, of course, cheese. Sprinkle some cheese on the top, pop it into the oven, and wait till the cheese melts and is nice and bubbly, and voila, dinner is saved. David and James would say, of course, everyone knows that cheese covers a multitude of food sins. I know it's a cheesy illustration, but that is like the grace that we live under in our church community. God's love shown through Jesus and reflected in our lives covers a multitude of sins, as it says in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. We are still challenged to root out what is hurting ourselves and others, but we can do this knowing that we are covered by God's grace. Back in our reading from Matthew 18, Jesus now turns to focus on reaching out to others. But take note, this is not reaching out to others outside the Christian community. This passage is all about building the Christian community. This time, by reaching out, we are reaching out to the others who are part of the Christian community. Starting at verse 10. See that you do not despise even one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should perish. What amazing grace can be seen in this passage. Again, the parable about the sheep is not about the sheep who have never known God. In the story, the sheep are those who have been part of the Christian community and are now wandering away from that community. God cares about the ones who are wandering and lost, those on the fence and those struggling with God. They matter, and it matters to God how they are treated by the rest of the community. Jesus calls us to be like God and to go seeking out those who are wandering. We'll move to the next section, verses 15 to 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
This passage really does deserve a sermon on its own because it has so often been taken out of context and misused. But instead, I'll just mention a few things about it. Before confronting someone, the self-disciplining practices mentioned in the previous verses need to be practiced by the one doing the confronting. Again, this is for someone inside the community, not outside of it. And this type of confronting is for that which is clearly and consistently a sin, an action that is deliberately hurting the faith of the marginalized, the least of the people that are mentioned in the stories before. We also need to keep in mind that our context today is radically different than the one Jesus was teaching in. What has been often called excommunication, kicking someone out of the church, doesn't have the same effect as it did then because there are so many different churches and our communities are no longer centered around the church. So asking someone to leave a church has different implications now that they can just try the church down the road. Also, these verses need to be read in the context of the rest of Matthew. Matthew 7 says, do not judge. And in Matthew 13, Jesus instructs to leave the weeds in with the wheat until harvest time. And yet here in this passage, Jesus also instructs that sin cannot be ignored. If taken as a whole, our attitude towards people who think differently than us can be more balanced. Confronting and disciplining those who follow God needs to be done prayerfully, carefully, and within the church, but probably not in front of the church. And lastly, Jesus says to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. But remember from other stories how Jesus treats pagans and tax collectors. He eats with them. He talks with them. He loves them. How Jesus treats those outside of the faith community should inform us how we treat those who have not repented from their sin. There's so much more to say about this, but I'll leave it there. Let's continue reading with verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. After teaching about confronting others, and before going on to teaching about forgiveness, Jesus brings us back to focus on the grace that covers us. The teaching started with Jesus bringing attention to the death and resurrection, his purpose of coming to the world. And here again, we see the grace that Jesus offers. When we orientate ourselves toward Jesus, he is always with us. In these verses, Jesus not only promises to be with us, but also invites us to be part of community to be part of a community of believers. We are given power to hold others accountable. 
We are invited to come together to ask for what we need. Life together, community, is essential. But the size of the community is not what is important. In Judaism, a minimum of 10 males were required in order to have corporate worship. Here, Jesus overcomes all of this by giving the power to the smallest group possible, too. What is important is that the community takes place in the direction of Jesus. In this passage, it says, in my name. And in the Bible, someone's name is synonymous with the person. Names were used to describe a person's character and personality. So to be gathered in Jesus' name means to be centered and facing the direction of Jesus. When wandering in the wilderness, the Israelite people of the Old Testament would set up their tents facing the tent of meeting, which was the place where God dwelled. Jesus changes this too. Instead of being facing the direction of a place, we build our lives facing the direction of Jesus the risen and alive Jesus, who sent the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promises to be with us when we face Jesus together as a community, no matter how big or how small the community. And there is no uncertainty when it comes to Jesus' presence. When, Jesus, when people are gathered in Jesus' name, Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit is there. If Jesus can break through the rules about size of community, I think the Holy Spirit can transcend the fact that today we are not all gathered in one place. Today we are scattered, worshiping in our homes and maybe even at different times during this week. And yet through technology, we are gathered together as a community of faith. And through our songs, our prayers, our giving, and our scripture reading, we have faced Jesus together. And so Jesus' promise to be with those who do this is for us too, even in this time. Jesus now ends this part of the teaching on community with a story about forgiveness, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, oh, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. Servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. God knows that where believers are gathered together, we will really be able to understand and need to practice forgiveness. Forgiveness makes all the other parts of being community able to happen. And all the other instructions on discipline, confrontation, seeking out the lost, are all for the purpose of forgiveness. The church community is to be a repentant, reconciled, forgiven, and forgiving people who are gathered in Jesus' name. And to accomplish this, we limit our freedoms so that we do not hurt the non-Christian community. We focus on people who are marginalized and disenfranchised in our communities, who normally may not have a voice or may not be heard. We examine our own lives to remove the parts that hurt and mislead ourselves and others. We seek those in our community who are wandering and lost. We confront those whose sin is hurting themselves and others. And we forgive just as we have been forgiven. And through it all, Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. In all our self-discipline, in all the conflicts, the sin, the confrontation, and the need to forgive, the Holy Spirit is with us. That is the answer to the question I posed at the beginning of this message. Where is the Holy Spirit and what is the Holy Spirit doing when believers, believing Christians who are earnestly seeking out what God wants for them and all believe they are being led by the Holy Spirit come to completely different conclusions? The Holy Spirit is right there with us in the middle of our conflicts in the middle of our confrontations in the middle of the messiness of forgiveness the holy spirit is right there and when we are orientated toward jesus there is the holy spirit so why the holy spirit does not all show us the same thing and lead us to come to the same conclusions? I don't know. Maybe the being of one mind from Philippians 2 verse 2 is really about our orientation towards Jesus. When we are like-minded and that we are gathered in Jesus' name, then we are of one mind, even if we come to different conclusions. Rachel Held Evans, in her book, Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again, concludes that our focus as Christian communities is not about which interpretation or understanding is the right way, but what is going to further the message of the gospel. 
For those of us who want to be right and are sure we are right, the answer seems inadequate. We like things neat and organized in the right spot, knowing how we are supposed to live. And all this unknown, this tension seems uncomfortable. But that is why we get this precious verse about Jesus being with us in the middle of a teaching about conflict and sin. For where two or three are gather, gather in my name, there am I with them. Let's pray. God, thank you for being with us in all the messiness of life, in all the uncertainties, in all the questions. We know you are there Help us to orientate ourselves to Jesus. No matter what else is going on around us, no matter what conflicts, what uncertainties are there, may we all together face you, Jesus, that we might come together as a people brought together under the cross, under your love, grace, and forgiveness. Help us, Lord, in all this time of being community together, whether it looks like it does now or whether it looks what it looks like when we're all gathered in one place. Be with us, Lord. Amen.